Poopy. This is Mystery History Theater uh, number four. And this might be somewhat out of sequence. <clears throat> but I really don't care because I've been wanting to get a hold of this, and I did. It just came in. It's an article that was written in Civil War times. August for the uh, August 1961 issue that would be volume three number five and it said exclusive in this issue did Stanton plan Lincoln's murder but the cover photo is of Lafayette C. Baker who was the head of the National Detective Police sort of like an FBI of the times for at least for the Union uh, Army and it said, was he poisoned in, in a vain attempt to silence him about the role of Stanton, others in plot? Now, it was a bit of a setup. As I said, this is kind of out of sequence. I had wanted to do uh, a segment on Booth, um, which John Booth are you looking for? And also another segment on a mystery woman who will never, ever be in the shall we say, sanitized annals of American history, but a woman who, if her exploits were portrayed in a novel or on the uh, silver screen, uh, you might think them um, too fantastic to be real, but in fact they were. Be that as it may, we go back to this article in the Civil War Times, August 1961 edition, it will refer to a person by the name of Ray Neff. Neff and Gutridge were the co-authors of the book Dark Union, which a lot of people bang on. And uh, I'm just going to say this. Uh, someone made me aware of the book about 10 years ago. I read it, and I found it very plausible. Uh, as we get down this road of whether or not Booth died in Garrett's barn, which he did not, uh, even amongst the, those who know that Booth did not die in Garrett's barn, uh, he draws a lot of flack, but well, he, Neff, who's, who's been at this probably since the 50s, uh, and also his co-author, uh, Gutridge, because, I mean, what are you going to say? If they are privy to information no one else is, you can't turn around and bang on them for being out of lockstep with everyone else or that they should be debunked. I mean, they got the goods, and we're going to go through this several times on several issues and uh, I'll leave it to you to decide, but I'm just going to say to you, uh, what are you going to do if you find a source that seems to have all the ducks in a row? I mean, it's just the way it goes. I mean, as far as a mainstream history, they're idiots. They're just absolute idiots. You know, they're the ones who did revision, revisionist history, and they swear to it. Now, I'm going to do a cold read for which I will not apologize because I just wanted to get this out. I had waited for quite some time. Uh, I'm slow coming out of the uh, holiday break. Uh, and slower every year. So I just want to get into this, okay? So the uh, article is written by Robert H. Fowler. Uh, well, maybe a little bit more about him later on. At that time, he was the editor of this very uh, Civil War Times. Now, Edwin Stanton was Secretary of State. As far as I can see, <clears throat> as nasty a piece of crap as ever sat uh, on any cabinet. Just, I don't know, just, I mean, the mere picture of him and what he was up to makes one's upper lip uh, curl. So here we go. This is Fowler's piece. Did Edwin M. Stanton engineer the murder of Abraham Lincoln as part of a vast well-financed plot to seize control of the federal government at the end of the Civil War and prevent an easy peace for the conquered South? was the chief of Stanton's powerful secret National Detective Police Force, Brigadier General Lafayette C. Baker, poisoned in 1868 to ensure his silence about the plot. These possibilities are raised by a series of discoveries claimed by a Gibbsboro, New Jersey research chemist and longtime student of the Civil War, Ray A. Neff. Unless what Neff has uncovered is merely an intricate hoax by Lafayette C. Baker, the suspicion that has lingered through the years concerning Stanton's role in the assassination of Lincoln may well be based on brutal fact. Neff, now at this time, a 37-year-old native of Virginia, has discovered two ciphered messages left by Baker in a bound volume of Coburn's United, Ser United Service Magazine, Series 2, 1864, in which the one-time secret police chief, presumably, 
And there's a list here. Okay, presumably told how Stanton allegedly plotted the murder of Lincoln and headed a conspiracy involving, quote, at least 11 members of Congress, no less than 12 Army officers, three naval officers, and at least 24 civilians, of which one was a governor of a loyal state. Presumably indicated he had entered the names of the supposed conspirators in another bound volume of the same military journal, a book, incidentally, which Neff and Civil War Times have tried to locate for more than a year without success, presumably spoke of, quote, constantly being followed, and he expressed fear for his life. And as you'll find out, he should have because it was taken from him. After spending many weeks digging in the files of the Philadelphia City Hall in an effort to authenticate these amazing charges, Neff finally found the transcript of a hearing conducted by the Philadelphia Register of Wills in 1872 concerning a long-suppressed codicil to Baker's will. This remarkable document contained testimony, and we have another list here, describing two attempts on Baker's life by shooting and one by cutting, uh, also establishing the strong suspicion that his death, July 3, 1868, was due to arsenic poisoning, a suspicion that is strengthened by a last-minute diagnosis of his illness as, quote, meningitis, so that his body was sealed immediately, and of course out of fear, in a coffin. Also, indicating that Baker possessed a large sum of money, at least $275,000, when he died, and that the money was secretly removed immediately after the death by the wife of a cousin. But perhaps the most surprising part of the testimony that Neff found was that given by a former national detective who told of visiting Baker just before his death and finding him writing in cipher in an English military journal. The same witness said that at Baker's insistence, he had, another, uh, he had taken another volume of the same journal and had found cipher written in it. In a painstaking search of records which had not been examined for years, Neff also located an inventory of L.C. Baker's personal property, which listed bound volumes of Coburn's U.S. Service magazine, complete from 1860 through 1865, except for the first half of 1864, the very volume in which Baker's ciphered message said the names of the conspirators were listed. Now, cipher, as it relates here, has to do with writing in some kind of code. Sometimes it's accomplished by acrostics, but if it's something that's replete as this, it probably wasn't acrostics. Moving on. There can be little doubt that the volume of magazines in Ness' possession was left by Lafayette C. Baker, and that the cipher in them was written by him. Two handwriting experts have authenticated Baker's signature in the book. What Baker said about Stanton and the conspiracy against Lincoln can hardly be regarded as final proof of the Secretary of War's long-suspected guilt. However, it can only be treated as new and possibly perjured evidence. From what is known about Baker, he was capable of leaving the coded message simply to embarrass Stanton. Truthfulness was not his outstanding virtue. He was a scoundrel. Even so, Civil War Times felt that Neff's findings did deserve a careful hearing when he first brought them to our attention in July 1960. This magazine agreed to assist him in searching for the missing volume of the military journal while he ran down his remaining leads. Repeated advertisements in Civil War Times and attempts elsewhere have not brought, the, brought forth a single copy of the military journal with or without Baker's cipher. But it gets better, and Neff's attempts to locate Baker's grave to have his remains tested for traces of arsenic have been fruitless. As I definitely turn the page here. That part of the cemetery where the detective chief was buried was taken over as a public playground in 1924, and the bodies therein were removed to another Philadelphia graveyard. This is what Neff learned. The records of which bodies went into which plots in this removal cannot be found. Likewise, Neff has been unable to find several boxes of Baker's impounded personal papers and books, which may be stored somewhere in the vast Philadelphia City Hall. And after he had gone as far as his single-handed efforts could take him, Civil War Times decided to print the evidence turned up through his arduous and dedicated research. First, however, this magazine enlisted the help of the Pennsylvania, uh, sorry, Pennsylvania Historical and Museum Commission 
in authenticating the will and codicil left by Baker. Neff turned over this copy of the military journal to be examined as closely as we wished. The professional cryptographer who helped Neff decode the relatively simple cipher left by Baker died last year, which would be 1960. Therefore, Civil War Times submitted the code to two U.S. government historians for checking. A one handwriting expert had already verified Baker's signature in the volume, but we had Captain Stanley S. Smith of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, a veteran handwriting expert, double-check it with Baker's signature on his will and the codicil. As specified in his accompanying statement, Captain Smith testifies to the authenticity of the signature in the volume. The book apparently did belong to Baker. The messages, whether true or false, do appear to have been written by him. The story now can be told. And this story for Ray A. Neff began four years ago when he innocently bought a bound volume of Coburn's United Service magazine at Leary's Bookstores in Pennsylvania. He paid 50 cents for the volume, which contains issues of the journal for the last half of 1864. This is uh, Neff uh, in quotes. Some months later, I noticed that when there were numbers and letters written in pencil in the inner margins next to the binding, they appear as cipher but are not grouped as cipher usually is. Neff enlisted the aid of Leonard Fouche of Collingswood, New Jersey, a professional cryptographer. Uh, Fouche died in 1960. And this runs all through this stuff. I mean, you know, you can almost look at somebody who's doing research and coming closer and closer to some very startling information and exposés of exactly what took place then. But now, I mean, you're dealing with almost a century after the fact, and people are dying, and people who are this, the children of someone or the relatives of someone are dying. And just as you get there, like in this situation, people are passing away. All right, be that as it may. With the help of his wife, and then we're talking about this foosh, uh, Neff deciphered the two messages, the text of which are printed on page 10 of this issue. The first message is in what Neff calls, quote, substitution cipher, end of quote, of a, quote, sliding variety, end of quote. Each letter in the message is represented by another letter with frequent changes or slides back and forth through the alphabet to make solution more difficult. Each word is separated from the next by a number. Uh, <clears throat> punctuation, absent in cipher, was inserted by Neff. The first part of this cipher, found on page 181 of the volume, is dated February 5th, 1868, and runs, quote, I am constantly being followed. They are professionals. I cannot fool them, end of quote. Then on page 183, there begins this allegorical message in the same cipher. Quote, In New Rome, there walked three men, a Judas, a Brutus, and a spy. Each planned that he should be the king uh, when Abraham should die. One trusted not the other, but they went on for that day, waiting for that final moment when, with pistol in his hand, one of the sons of Brutus could sneak behind that cursed man and put a bullet in his brain and lay his clumsy course away. As the fallen man lay dying, Judas came and paid respects to what he hated, and when at last he saw him die, he said, Now the ages have him, and the nation now have I. But alas, as fate would have it, Judas so slowly fell from grace, and with him went Brutus down to their proper place. Uh, but lest one is left to wonder what has happened to the spy, I can safely tell you it is I. Lafayette C. Baker, February 5th, 1868. Anyone with a smattering of knowledge about Lincoln's assassination would assume that Judas referred to Edwin M. Stanton, to whom is attributed wrongly or rightly, the quotation about Lincoln, now he belongs to the ages. John Wilkes Booth, Lincoln's killer, would be the one of the sons of Brutus. <clears throat> of course, some bright schoolboy could have written the foregoing. The other cipher Neff found in the military journals employed an even simpler system of cryptology. Dots were placed under letters on the printed page to form words, but the message called for intimate knowledge of the period on the author's part. The full text is printed on page 10. The message, the message said that the author, presumably Baker, 
learned of the plot against Lincoln on April 10, 1865, and that when he approached E.S., or Edward Stanton, about it, the Secretary of War first acted surprised, but then said Baker was party to it. On the next day, the message, message said, Stanton showed Baker a forged document making it appear that he, Baker, had been in charge of a plot to kidnap the president. There are two interpretations of the rest of this sentence. One would indicate that Vice President Andrew Johnson was also to have been kidnapped. The other, that he was the uh, instigator of the conspiracy. Let's re let me read that again so we get it straightened out, okay? Going back, because uh, this sounds kind of like Stark, and yet it just isn't written like a big deal. Um, when Baker approached Stanton about this conspiracy to kill Lincoln, the Secretary of War first acted surprised, but then said Baker was a party to it. Go figure out how that thing worked out. Let's hit it again. On the next day, the message said, Stanton showed Baker a forged document, making it appear that he, Baker, had been in charge of a plot to kidnap the president. There are two interpretations of the rest of this sentence. One would indicate that Vice President Andrew Johnson was also to have been kidnapped. The other, that he was the instigator of the conspiracy. The message also says that when Stanton learned that Lincoln wanted to permit the Confederate legislature of Virginia to assemble to withdraw the state's troops from the war, quote, he fermented immediately into an insane tirade, end of quote, and sent a telegram rescinding the president's order. Finally, the cipher yielded this amazing message, and here we go. There were at least 11 members of Congress involved in the plot, no less than 12 Army officers, three naval officers, and at least 24 civilians, of which one was a governor of a loyal state. Five were bankers of great repute. Three were nationally known newspapermen, and 11 were industrialists, industrialists of great repute and wealth. There are probably more uh, that I know nothing of. The names of these known conspirators is presented without comment or uh, notation in volume one of this series. $85,000 was contributed by the named persons to pay for the deed. Only eight persons knew the details of the plot and the identity of the others. I fear for my life, and it ends LCB. Naturally, these disclosures excited Neff, whose Civil War studies go back to his days at Bridgewater College. But, quote, I was quite cautious about disclosing the message, since Cypher is without character and very difficult, if not impossible, to authenticate. He began, quote, a detailed study, end quote, to see if the volume held more secrets. Neff found several discolored places, which he subjected uh, to ultra-short wavelength ultraviolet radiations. One of these spots emitted a purple glow, but prolonged exposure to the lamp produced no results. Neff then spread a tannic acid solution over the spot and came up with the signature L.C. Baker. At the time, Neff was working in the office of the medical examiner of the city of Philadelphia under a Walter G. Carr graduate fellowship. He had the signature examined by a city handwriting expert. The signature was declared genuine. In Neff's view, this, uh, quote, this signature was made with an invisible ink having a ferrocyanide base, end of quote. As he points out, quote, ink of this type was widely used by secret agents on both sides during the Civil War and would become visible after exposure to the sunlight for about a half hour, end of quote. He thinks that the ink lost some of its properties over the years so that it would not respond to the UV lamp. He says that ferric uh, ion plus tannic acid yields ferric tannate, a blue ink, and adds that the ferric ion would remain intact for a couple of centuries after the writing no longer would respond to sunlight or ultraviolet rays. Despite his discovery, Neff kept the story to himself. He started digging into the life of L.C. Baker, Plenty of surface information was available in standard reference works and in Baker's own, and this is the title, History of the Secret Service, which he wrote with the help of New York journalists uh, after the war. Neff went far beyond these published sources. He knew that Baker had moved to Philadelphia after his dismissal in February 1866 
following Andrew Johnson's discovery that the National Detective Police had the White House under surveillance. What else is new? He knew that Baker had died on July 3, 1868, in Philadelphia. So Neff began an exhaustive examination of the records in the city hall there. On file in the Register of Wills, uh, he found the will of Lafayette C. Baker dated April 30, 1866. Baker left specific amounts to his three brothers and three sisters and willed the residue of his estate to his wife, Jane Curry Baker. Newspaper accounts of Baker's death said he died of typhoid, but Neff found a different story on the death certificate. Signed by Dr. William S. Rickards, it listed meningitis as the cause of death. This discrepancy was to take on greater significance as Neff's investigation wore on. Luther Byron Baker, a cousin and fellow spy, on July 29, 1868, declined to serve as executor as named in the will. The full duties of executor devolved upon co-executor Joseph E. Steifold, who on August 24th reported to the Register of Wills that he had been unable to find any personal property belonging to Baker. This report, too, did not appear significant until later. Neff then began checking out the legal records of the four witnesses to Baker's 1866 will. Only one provided results, but what results? Mary Baker, wife of John F. Baker, a cousin of Lafayette, lived next door to the former master spy at the time of his death. She died in 1870 of tuberculosis. She left the will signed June 11, 1867. Among her records at City Hall was an unprobated codicil to the will of Elsie Baker dated June 31, 1861, three days before his death, assuming that June 30th, rather than the 31st, was the date. The codicil provided for uh, all books, diaries, and personal papers, not of a financial nature, to be given to, quote, my longtime friend Laura Duval, of Washington, D.C., end of quote. And across the bottom of the codicil was written the notation, quote, rejected by Orphan's Court, MBF, January 6th, 1879, end of quote. And uh, we pick up with Neff um, recalling this. When I saw that, I knew that somewhere in the city hall there had to be a record of the hearing into that codicil. He began another search, that is, Neff. He learned the book uh, number of the transcript of the hearing, but looked through the piles of old documents for, the, for day after day without finding the transcript itself. This was the most discouraging part of the investigation for Neff. There was the uh, nagging thought that even if he found the transcript, it might contain only routine material. For a long time, it appeared that he was chasing after a needle of information hopelessly concealed in a haystack of dusty and long-neglected official records. Neff again. <clears throat> then one day I moved a pile of old books aside and found the ledger with the number the clerk had told me to look for. The ledger contained a handwritten transcript, quote, in the matter of the probate of a paper uh, propounded as a codicil to the last will and testament of Lafayette C. Baker, deceased. The information in the transcript of the two-day hearing held October 14th and 15th, 1872, went far beyond anything Neff had expected to find. The full text printed on pages 16 to 23 of this issue of Civil War Times makes fascinating reading, and we'll get to that uh, hopefully next time around. To relate its entire story uh, here would obscure Neff's main points. One, that the messages in the English military journal were written by Baker, and two, there was justification for the suspicion that he was poisoned to keep him silent, either about the conspiracy against Lincoln or some other matter. Mary Baker, a poor woman when her illustrious next-door neighbor and cousin of her husband died in 1868, laid, uh, left an estate of approximately $275,000 when she herself died four years later. Her daughter Elizabeth, executrix of her estate, found the unrecorded codicil and six boxes of Lafayette Baker's books and papers among her mother's effects. On the advice of her lawyer, she submitted the codicil to the Register of Wills. The remaining personal possessions of Lafayette Baker were then inventoried and impounded 
and the uh, hearing ordered. Exactly why it had been reported to the Register of Wills in 1868 that Baker had left no personal possessions came out very quickly at the hearing. Elizabeth Baker testified that on the night of, quote, Uncle Loft's death, he was actually her cousin, her mother, Mary, had two colored men bring several, quote, heavy wooden boxes, unquote, from the L.C. Baker home and store them in the attic of her own home next door. Although Elizabeth refused to admit that her mother had deliberately suppressed the codicil dealing with these boxes, that was obviously what had happened. Mary Baker had signed the codicil as a witness. Now, the heirs of Lafayette C. Baker did not call the hearing just to gain possession of a few boxes of books and papers. They were certain that Baker had left a large amount of cash among his personal possessions, cash which they felt belonged to them under his will of 1866. The lawyer for Baker's heirs tried to prove that Lafayette C. Baker was insane during the last few months of his life and that his talk of attempts on his life and of having large sums of money was simply evidence of mental unbalance. These allegations were strongly contested by witnesses for the legatee of the codicil, Laura Duval, to wit. Dr. William L. Rickards, personal physician of Lafayette C. Baker, told of taking six stitches in a knife wounded, uh, a knife wound inflicted on Baker the night of December 23, 1867. The attack occurred on the front porch of Baker's home. Dr. Ricketts told of removing from Baker's face splinters caused by a bullet striking the door of the master spy's carriage, quote, about December 28th, unquote, of the previous year. And he told of Baker coming to his office on January 5th, 1868, for, quote, nerve medicine, unquote, because of these attacks. What's more, the doctor testified he had observed two men shadowing Baker after the former national police director had left his office. And the same day, two men pounced on Baker, beat him, and tried to force him into a carriage. The attack was halted by a policeman, Dr. Rickard said. For a time thereafter, a police guard was assigned to Baker, he said. The physician detailed Baker's final illness thusly. On January, uh, January 12, 1868, soon after eating with his wife at the home of friends in the Germantown section of Philadelphia, Baker became violently ill with, quote, ptomaine poisoning, end quote. On February 14th, he developed a high fever, which was diagnosed as, quote, typhoid. On July 1st, Baker showed symptoms of having meningitis and died at 12.10 a.m. July 3rd. Two hours after a magistrate signed an order to have the coffin sealed because of the contagious nature of the disease. This was done at 2.30 a.m., after which the house was fumigated. In parentheses, by this time the boxes of personal possessions had been taken next door to Mary Baker's house. In parentheses. Dr. Rickards, a highly respected citizen of Philadelphia and an ardent abolitionist, represented himself as a close personal friend of Baker's as well as his personal physician. He said he regarded Baker as a brilliant man uh, who was perfectly sane. Evidently, the family of Lafayette C. Baker suspected he had died of arsenic poisoning, for at the hearing their lawyer, Walter Marshall, bore down heavily on this possibility. Dr. Rickard said, I know that he was not poisoned, because no one had the opportunity. Buddy replied yes to the question. In other words, the symptoms shown by General Baker show more similarity to arsenic poisoning than they do to typhoid fever? And he admitted that at one point during his treatment of Baker, he himself had suspected that the master detective was being poisoned, quote, by accidental means, end of quote. He had Baker's medicine checked carefully, but it proved non-toxic. All right, now this is uh, in Italis. His suspicions were aroused, he said, when General Baker was having very severe headaches, and I applied leeches behind his ears. This is Dr. Rickards. The leeches stuck at first and then dropped off. When reapplied, they would again drop off. I returned them to the apothecary and got others. These did the same. I watched uh, these second leeches and observed that they were soon dead. <laughs> would this, uh, what would this indicate? It would indicate some sort of poison. After consulting an associate, I concluded that it was due to the toxins of typhoid. All right, this is Dr. Rickards. Uh, Rickards, speaking as both a friend of the Baker family and, and as a physician, said he didn't think this could have been caused by arsenic, 
but he replied yes to the question, speaking solely as a physician, could it have been arsenic? All right, in parentheses, Ray Neff, who is now doing graduate work in toxicology at Jefferson Medical College, points out that snails and leeches are, quote, particularly susceptible to arsenic poisoning, end of quote. On the other hand, he says, the toxins of typhoid would be uh, protonaceous and would be likely to be slow-acting. Neff also points out that arsenic poisoning often is misdiagnosed because its symptoms resemble those of several other ailments, end of uh, parentheses. Dr. Rickard spoke of Baker as a, quote, very kind and generous man, unquote, adding that, quote, much of the false things which had been written about him gave him worry. It made no difference whether it was good or bad. If it was untruthful, it worried him. He was very apprehensive about what history would say about him, which is like basically nothing, uh, moving on. Uh, he wanted it to be good, but he also wanted it to be accurate. He often told me of his concern about this, end of quote. The physician who uh, the visit, uh, physician also testified that Baker quote said that he had no ideas as to who was behind in parentheses the attempts on his life in the parentheses or why they were trying to kill him end of uh, quotation marks. He insisted that Baker was sane until his death and that the possibility he had committed suicide was quote unthinkable end of quotes. Kathleen Hawks, who worked in the Baker home from February first, eighteen sixty eight. The June 1, 1868, testified that, in her opinion, Baker, quote, was as sane as you or I. Let me say that again, was as sane as you or I, end of quote. And for his fears of being killed, she said these were well-founded. And here's a quote by her. The general was standing by the window, and someone shot at him, she said. The bullets narrowly missed him and struck the wall near my head. I screamed and ran out of the room. That's the end of the quote. Ms. Hawk said that Baker was not hurt, quote, but he looked frightened and said they would, they would get him yet. I asked him with, uh, who, and he said, my old friends, end of quote. Did he say why? Quote, he said he had papers which would send them to prison, end of quote. The witness also told of a Mr. Cobb uh, whose visits upset Baker. One time he said to me that Mr. Cobb would like to see him dead. Another time he said that Mr. Cobb wanted some papers which he had. She also told of overhearing Cobb say on one occasion, Our patience is running short, Baker. You haven't much time. As for Baker's having a large amount of money, Miss Hawk said she knew this was true. When she asked uh, for her uh, back wages of, quote, about $8, end of quote, Baker had given her a key and sent her to the attic for a tin box, which he had opened uh, with another key kept on a string around his neck. She said the box was plumb full of new money, mostly in 50 and $100 bills, and that he had paid uh, her $20 because she had been a good nurse. Moving on, Mrs. Bridget McBain, the nurse who replaced her, said she thought Baker, quote, was daft. <laughs> All right, end of quote. Uh, he, um, he was always talking about how somebody was trying to do him, or to do him in, and as how he had, pa had papers to prove it, and as how he had a lot of money hidden, and they was after it, end of quote. She had never seen the money, she said, adding, I'm, uh, quote, I'm still owed for me, for me last two weeks' work there. Okay, obviously this woman isn't too uh, <laughs> articulate. I don't know. Okay, uh, but she did tell of seeing Baker sign the codicil in question, and she testified that Mrs. Baker rarely slept in the house, preferring to stay at the homes of relatives because, quote, she said she was afraid, end of quote. The testimony that clinched the importance of Neff's find was that offered by William Carter, then a drummer for American Household Supply Company, who had uh, worked under Baker during the war. He told a visiting Baker on June 30th, 1868, three days before his death, and of finding him, quote, in fair spirits, end of quote. Carter said Baker, quote, seemed uh, mentally sharp, end of quote, but added that, quote, he did say some things which made me wonder, though. When I came into the room, he had a stack of books by his bed, and he uh, had one open and was making marks in it. I asked him what he was doing, and he said, I'm writing my memoirs. I asked him to make sure I had heard him write, and he said it over again. Then I said, uh, but General, the books is already wrote, and he said, right, they are going to have to get up early to get ahead of old Lot Baker. 
and then he laughed. I picked up one of the books and looked at it until I saw that he was writing cipher in it, but it was a different cipher than I had ever seen before. I learned to read and write cipher when I was in the National Detective Police during the war, uh, and I never uh, seen anything like he was writing that day. I asked him what it was, and he just laughed. Asked whether Baker had seemed strange or insane. He replied, once again, this is a good old, uh, what's his face? No, he didn't seem insane, but he didn't seem himself. It could have been the medicine, but he seemed sort of funny. He kept laughing and kind of cackling. All the time that I was there, he kept writing in the book. Once I picked up one of the books and looked at the title in it, it was an English military journal, and it had a story in it that I was interested in. When I said that I was interested in it, he gave me the book and told me to take it home with me. Carter said he had found Cypher in the book but could not read it. Yes, he still had the book. Neff believes that the book in Carter's possession in 1872 was Colburn's United Service magazine for the first half of 1864 and that it contained the names of the, quote, known conspirators, unquote, to whom Lafayette C. Baker referred in the coded message in Series 2 of the same year. As pointed out before, Baker said of the magazine, uh, as listed in the inventory ordered by the Register of Wills, was completed in 1872 except for this one bound volume. Neff thinks that the copy of the issues for the last half of 1864, which he bought for 50 cents, must have been pilfered from the impounded belongings sometime after the hearing. Of course, the persons at the hearing had little interest in ciphered messages or military journals. It was the large sum of cash Lafayette C. Baker had left in which they were interested. Attorney Walter Marshall, representing the heirs of Baker's main will, finally observed that, quote, the late Lafayette C. Baker was, uh, was prior to June 31, 1868, mentally deranged and incompetent, end of quote. Marshall didn't say so, but the fact that, uh, that the codicil is dated June 31st, a non-existent date, 30 days has September, April, June, right? Okay, might be considered evidence of mental confusion on Baker's part. His clients couldn't have cared less who got the personal papers, quote, not uh, of a financial nature, unquote, which Baker left in the codicil to one Laura Duval, proving the sanity of the late detective chief no longer seemed important, perhaps. But Marshall asked the Register of Wills to, quote, note the testimony concerning the possession by the late L.C. Baker of a large sum of money as late as June 1, 1868, and further that the late Mary Baker had access to the L.C. Baker household at the time of and immediately following the death of the late L.C. Baker, that it has been testified that she was alone in the household with his corpse before the undertakers arrived, and further that there is no apparent source of the large estate left by the late Mary Baker. One person at the hearing said little until the proceedings were ended. He was John F. Smallwood, a representative of the United States War Department, who moved, quote, that certain papers which are in the inventory of contents of the six boxes found would the effects of the late Mary Baker be released to the War Department, end of quote. And this is Smallwood. These documents were pilfered from War Department files many years ago, and they are important. I am here prepared to take charge of them for the government. Uh, the register told Smallwood he would have to select the papers and turn them over to the clerk to be read into the record before they could be released, War Department or no War Department. Okay, Smallwood again. It is the desire of the government to have these documents kept secret. Uh, Smallwood said upon refusal of the register to give up the papers without recording them, uh, he withdrew his petition. Laura Duval, who would have uh, received the personal property of the Baker's codicil, was not present for the hearing. She was represented by John R. Rogers. Elizabeth Baker, Baker identified her as a woman who paid frequent visits to Lafayette in his final sickness and who had been very kind. Um, uh, had been very kind to him. General Baker's wife was jealous of Miss Duval, according to Elizabeth Baker. Other than that, Miss Duval had brought Baker flowers and once appeared as a witness for him in a government case and had a job uh, through whose influence Miss Baker knew nothing more about her. Laura Duval is mentioned in Baker's History of the Secret Service as a witness against a Treasury Department official, Spencer H. Clark, with whom she uh, admitted intimacies. She appears to have been uh, one of the uh, 
demi-prostitutes who worked in government offices in Washington during the war. If our analysis of her character is incorrect, we apologize to the memory of Ms. Duval. Uh, whether Baker's bequest to her was merely a, a casual gesture in his dying days or a token of deeper affection cannot be said 93 years later on the basis of the skimpy records. Skimpy, I get it. At any rate, she never got the papers Baker wanted her to have. She was killed in Philadelphia, what a surprise, during the summer of 1876 by her runaway team, that would be of horses. On January 6, 1879, the Cotisil was rejected by the orphan, Orphan's Court. In July of that same year, the estate of Mary Baker was finally settled with an uh, award of $80,000 going to the heirs of Lafayette. By that time, the estate had grown to $458,299.55, of which the various lawyers got $38,272.12. I'm just going to interject something right now uh, with uh, the fact that Baker's wife might have been jealous or a suspect of Laura Duval if, in fact, she was someone who uh, plied her wares. And that is uh, Baker's wife also is suspected of... Um, having an affair while her husband was ill with a member of the NDP who uh, will show up in a couple of places and has been described uh, by one source as the equivalent of a hitman. And it is suspected that he was, frankly, that this individual was pounding Baker's wife and trying to kill Baker at the same time through poisoning. But more about that later. Going back to the article by Fowler. Exactly what happened to the impounded personal possessions of Lafayette C. Baker is a question that haunts Ray A. Neff. He thinks that what has not been pilfered may be lying somewhere in one of the dozens of storerooms uh, of the City Hall of Philadelphia. He already has spent hour upon hour um, of searching without success. The inventory lists ten volumes of Baker's journals for the years 1858 to 1868, plus five volumes containing binders of correspondence and 22 volumes of photographs. These papers, if located, might prove of immense historical importance, Neff believes. As for what he has uncovered so far, Neff makes no extravagant claims. He is quick to admit that Baker may indeed have been lying or was, quote, mentally incompetent when he wrote the letters and numerals in the book now in my possession, end of quote. But he also points out how, <coughs> excuse me, um, what Baker wrote fits in with no details of the assassination of Lincoln. For instance, the ciphered message tells of Baker's learning, quote, on the 10th of April, 65, that some kind of plot had been laid against Lincoln. He says Eckert, who's Major Eckert, one of the uh, officers in the Union Army, had made all the context, the deed to be done on the 14th. Baker was using the dot method of cryptology for this message. That is, he simply placed a dot under the letters on the printed page to spell out his message. Quote, Eckert could refer to Major Thomas T. Eckert, that's what I was saying, who ran the military telegraph headquarters in the War Department. Baker began his message at the lower right of the page and worked right to the left, to left, to the top. No K appears on this particular page until near the top. Rather than have a long gap in his code, Baker probably misspelled in Major's name on purpose. Eckert was known as an incredibly strong man who could break a poker over his arm. Lincoln wanted him as a bodyguard at the Ford Theater the night of April 14, 1865. First Stanton refused to assign Eckert, saying that the Major had work to do. Then Lincoln spoke directly to Eckert, who declined on the pretext of work. Yet it has been established that the strong man, in fact, did not work that night and was at home when notified Lincoln had been shot. A further indication that Eckert referred to Eckert. And here's the spellings that you can't, you know, I'm not, I'm not telling you. So the coded word is Eckert, which is E-C-E-R-T. Referring to Eckert, E-C-K-E-R-T. All right, so it's all been kicked down. It's just a K. And that, I'm sorry, that created some confusion. So let me read that back again. A further indication that Eckert, without the K, referred to Eckert with the K, can be found in Baker's cryptic quotation of Stanton's Be Off, Tom, and See to the Arrangements. Okay? So uh, Baker's cryptic quotation of Stanton's Be 
be off tub and see to the arrangements. Okay, that's pretty open-ended but kind of suspect. Baker wrote that, quote, on the 13th, he, meaning Stanton, discovered that the president had ordered that the legislature of Virginia be allowed to assemble to withdraw the state's troops from action against the U.S. He fermented immediately uh, into an insane tirade. During that insane moment, he sent a telegram to General Weitzel, countermanding the president's order of the 12th. Then he laughed in a most spine-chilling manner and said, if he were to know who rescinded his order, he would let Lucifer tell him. The words tirade and rescinding were errors in spelling, which you don't have to worry about. Once again, he, he said, he, if, he would to, if he would to know who rescinded his order, we will let Lucifer tell him. Whew. Baker's memory failed him by a few days here. On April 6th, while the beaten Confederate Army in northern Virginia was retreating toward Appomattox, Lincoln sent the following telegram to Major General Godfrey Weitzel, whose 25th Corps occupied Richmond. It said, it wrote, whatever, it has been intimated to me that the gentlemen who have acted as the legislature of Virginia in support of the rebellion may now desire to assemble at Richmond and take measures to withdraw the Virginia troops and other support from resistance to the general government. If they attempt it, give them permission and protection until, if at all, they attempt some action hostile to the United States, in which case you will notify them and give them reasonable time to leave, and at the end of which time... Arrest any who may remain. Allow Judge Campbell to see, uh, to see this, but do not make it public. Judge John A. Campbell was a Virginian who had been on the U.S. Supreme Court before the war and had served as Assistant Secretary of War for the Confederacy. It appears that Campbell spoke and wrote uh, more freely about Lincoln's telegram than the president intended. Stanton's anger toward Lincoln in this case is indisputable. He and others in the government took Lincoln's telegram as open recognition of the Confederate legislature and regarded this as a further sign he would be too easy on the South. The, uh, quote, official records, quote, unquote, carries a message from Stanton uh, to uh, Weitzel uh, dated uh, 8 p.m. April 9, in which the Secretary of War upbraids the officer for permitting the Episcopal churches of captured Richmond to hold services without prayers for the President of the United States and adds, quote, you are, moreover, directed to hold no further uh, conference with Mr. Campbell on any subject without specific authority to be given by the president or this department. But if he desires to make any communications to you, uh, it must be in writing and transmitted by you to this department for instructions. That's the end of the quote. There is also a record of a telegram from Lincoln to General Weitzel dated April 12, 1865, 6 p.m., in which the president refers to the assumption, quote, that I have called the insurgent legislature of Virginia together as the rightful legislature of the state to settle all differences with the United States, end of quote. But Lincoln uh, wrote further, I have done no such thing. I spoke of them not as a legislature, but as, a uh, but as the gentlemen who have acted as the legislature of Virginia in support of the rebellion. End of quote. Lincoln countermanded his own instructions of April 6th, ending his telegram, quote, Do not allow them to assemble, but if any have come, allow them to uh, allow them a safe return to their homes. End of quote. It is conceivable that Stanton did send another message, rescinding the president's misunderstood instructions in secret. But it could not have been on the 13th because, one, Lincoln had already sent his telegram the day before, and two, whether Baker remembered it or not, he went to New York on the 13th and was there when Lincoln was shot. A comparison between the style of the substitution cipher beginning in New Rome and Baker's own history of the Secret Service shows interesting similarities. Obviously, Baker was obsessed with Roman history. Uh, his book contains frequent references to Julius Caesar and his cryptic messages is one long Roman allegory. Uh, the inventory of his personal possessions, too, lists three books on Roman history, uh, and in parentheses, and one titled How to Be a Detective, and in parentheses. I'm going to tell you uh, that I believe, but do not know for sure, that uh, his referring to Rome might refer to something else, and I think you know what I'm talking about. Uh, his book, uh, in one passage, implies that Stanton had prior knowledge of the plot against Lincoln. He tells how, on learning of the assassination, he rushed back to Washington and, quote, 
As I entered the secretary's office and he recognized me, he turned away to hide his tears. He remarked, Well, Baker, they now have performed what they have long threatened to do. They have killed the president. End of quote. And his book contains this scantily veiled threat in the form of an unsigned letter praising, quote, General, General L.C. Baker, chief detective of the War Department, uh, during the late rebellion. It goes on. And now about certain facts, Baker may state with respect to men in high official uh, relation with the government or otherwise. Well, uh, the half he will not tell. I know of many things he will not state, which I would. I have no mercy on men who will corrupt and contaminate all with whom they come in official contact, and men who, in time of peace, after treason has been put down, again secretly plot the overthrow of a government at once the best and noblest that the Son of the Eternal ever shone upon. <clears throat> right. I hope to see truth come, the strange passage runs. Let it cut where it may, as I believe the country to be still in danger, and unless some master hand will seize the knife and lay open the festering wound, the disease of the Republic will never heal. I am, very respectfully, and the so-called letter is unsigned. Someone surely was threatening someone. It may well have been Baker's oblique way of trying to throw a scare into Stanton. During an inquiry by the House Judiciary Committee into Lincoln's death in 1867, Baker gave testimony implying that Stanton had destroyed several pages from the diary uh, found on John Wilkes Booth's body. The House report on the hearing practically called Baker a liar for this and other testimony. Well, well, somebody took out the pages. All right. <clears throat> Neff points out that at the time of Baker's book was released in the summer of 1867, a power struggle was in progress between Stanton, who was uh, still Secretary of War, and President Johnson, that would be Andrew Johnson, over the latter's relatively lenient reconstruction policy. I'm going to stop there for a second because, you know, it's interesting because some say that Johnson was in on the uh, the murder plot, that he may in fact have goaded uh, Booth into killing uh, Lincoln because uh, he wanted to be president. But in the end, uh, what I don't understand is that Johnson really had nothing going for him. And when he did become president because of Lincoln's death, he got he just immediately got into all kinds of problems. And yes, he was as lenient uh, as uh, Lincoln was. And of course, this could not sit well with those who did not like Lincoln. So I don't know where Johnson was going with all this. Johnson also seems to be a bit of a uh, callow character, <clears throat> less than presidential. The contest, uh, contest ran through uh, sordid impeachment proceedings, which began March 5th, 1868, and ended on May 16th, 1868 with the radicals failing by one vote to gain the two-thirds majority in the Senate necessary for conviction. The first of the series of attacks on Baker occurred in December 1867, one year after the release of his book. He was dead either of typhoid, meningitis, or arsenic poisoning. Baker obviously left far more money than an honest, uh, hard-working detective could have amassed by honest hard work. He apparently had good reason to think someone was trying to kill him, and from what is known of his high-handed uh, police methods during the, world, uh, during the war, if nothing else, many had good reason to wish him dead. And unless someone has gone to fantastic ends to perpetrate a hoax, he was the author of the cipher charging Stanton with, the heading up, with heading up the conspiracy against Lincoln. The only question remaining then is, is uh, did Lafayette C. Baker tell the truth, or was he merely trying to settle an old score with Stanton? Despite his long months of personal sacrifice and incredible, incredible persistent research, Ray A. Neff does not feel qualified to answer the question. He'd like to locate the spot where Baker's uh, bones are buried, if he were poisoned, and if any fragments or, half, or hair or skeleton remain, traces of the arsenic could be detected. And again, I just want to stop for a second, because when they exhumed, I believe, Zachary Taylor's body, uh, and it was sent to Oak Ridge Laboratories, which is a government installation, you know, you do this stuff, what do you think you're going to get out? Oh, well, there was, there was just enough uh, arsenic as would be there naturally occurring. I mean, come on. This has happened time and time again, even from uh, William Henry Harrison. And we'll get into that in another time, because this will never, ever end. It's the same old crap, and the reason why history is repeated, because nobody really remembers what happened, because they've been shielded from the truth. All right, in this uh, last two paragraphs. 
uh, and Neff would like to find the rest of Baker's personal papers. Finally, he wants to get his hands on that bound volume of Colburn's United Mil- Service Military Journal <coughs> Excuse me, for the first half of 1864. Until he can run down these last important pieces of evidence, Neff will remain an unfulfilled man. Until he does, he will not accept the word of Lafayette C. Baker, for as he expressed it, quote, one can readily imagine the, the pleasure Baker would have gotten from the knowledge that one day he would again be in the national spotlight, although dead more than 90 years, pointing the accusing finger at his, quote, old friends. I, I will tell you from reading and reading and reading, it is, it is almost like, yes, I'm peeling an onion, you know, going through something, some labyrinth from which you will never uh, emerge. But i I got to say, I mean, at this particular time in American history, I mean, you talk about absolutely filthy government. Are you kidding me? And as much as there are parallels drawn to Kennedy uh, with Lincoln, uh, yeah, but, I mean, I don't care about whose secretary was named who. I mean, Kennedy's secretary was Lincoln, Lincoln's secretary. I mean, I don't – that's fine. That's 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 creepy, but it doesn't mean a thing. The point is that you had two presidents. I have no sympathy for any president. You know, you're a son of a bitch. You know what's going on. Don't tell me you're a Christian because you're not. It cannot happen. You go into office. You're told to follow the script. And when you veer from it, you get killed. Uh, And these two men uh, both did that. I mean, they both changed the script. Uh, I'm no fan of Lincoln. I'm no detractor of Lincoln. It just is what it is. And I think that he is somebody who finally realized he could not continue with what was going on. Not he, not, he could not do it personally and brought an end to things. And we'll talk about, later about how, of all the people who have PO'd about this whole situation, were those that were making money on this uh, Porphyry Cotton deal and other uh, transactions that were going on. It's always about the money. It's always about the money. With Kennedy, I mean, I don't care about the Federal Reserve. I think that's overplayed. There was something else going on there. And I think it had to do with the uh, restitution, if you will, of the casinos back to the mob. And the faded Bay of Pigs, which was not cared for in Europe. I mean, that's another whole deal. But to me, it was more of that situation, the, the Federal Reserve, which he was never going to get out of, you know, out of commission. He never will be. I mean, you hear this talk all the time. These are people who don't understand what the real truth is, and that is it is all the bankers doing, uh, and it will not be undone. With all the yapping that that Ron Paul does, it doesn't mean a thing. It makes him look good. He gets reelected, but it doesn't mean jack. Okay, that's just the facts of the situation. The Fed should never have been accepted. It was done so uh, extra-constitutionally. It was never tried in court. That's really interesting. And it still stays to this day. But that's then, uh, well, this is like more like then instead of back when. And with Lincoln. But, I, I, you know, if, if so many of the things that I've read, I mean, even you heard this uh, when I, I read the, uh, what you want to call it, the memoirs of the, uh, the spy turned NDP agent uh, whose nickname was Rob Rover, what he was talking about. Uh, and he thought Baker was a good man, and he knew Baker was in trouble, without a doubt. Uh, but if he and, and, and John Stevenson's, in his memoirs, who was uh, Michael O'Loughlin, one of the eight that was convicted for uh, complicity in the conspiracy to, well, kill Lincoln, uh, he, his uh, f- uh, death was faked in the Dry Tortugas, and he was released, his name was changed, uh, because the same person who was uh, banging Baker's wife and trying to poison him uh, under the guise of bringing him oysters and beer, because in Baltimore, oysters rain, uh, was the same guy that approached O'Loughlin and said, look, if you can find Booth's money, uh, we'll let you go. And, and O'Loughlin, now Stevenson, said, okay. And he went and he got the money. But instead of uh, uh, giving it back or sh- uh, just giving it at all to the National Detective Police and Pollock, uh, he got a hold of uh, Booth's wife, Isola Booth, grabbed some money and got her 
to San Francisco where she met Booth, who was not dead whatsoever. We'll go into more of this stuff, but I mean, you can see, even if I try to explain it, it just goes on, it goes on, and it goes on. I mean, it's a great mystery, but the thing is that it's true. And it's the stuff that's suppressed that nobody ever knows. And that's why I said, you know, I'm not buying this thing about those who don't know history will repeat it. It's like we don't know history because we were, we were shielded from it. Here's the deal. Government sucks. It's corrupt. It's always been corrupt, right from General Washington turning president. Believe me, we go through this stuff all the time. And we'll continue with this story. You just uh, heard from an article that was written in the Civil War Times from August 1961 about Lafayette Baker writing in cipher what the deal was. And like I said, so many point to uh, high-placed people, personages, politicians in the North. Uh, and that's what Rob Rover said in his memoirs. Stevenson says the same thing. This stuff was backed by people that were supposedly friends or, shall we say, uh, colleagues of Lincoln. Well, they may have been, but just like, Brut uh, just like Caesar getting stabbed by his own, Lincoln was too. When he changed the plan right after he got reelected, decided to bag the uh, meat for cotton deal, which cost many people on both sides of the Atlantic quite a few million. And then he decided to bring in the South as quickly and as passively, uh, specifically, I should say, as possible. Uh, that did not sit well. So it's the money. Uh, thanks for listening to this portion of uh, Mystery History Theater. Uh, we will continue with probably... More of the codicil that was spoken about we'll refer to. But then we're going to talk about John Wilkes Booth, exactly who he was, uh, how many faces he had, and whether or not he was such a, shall we say, crestfallen, uh, despairing uh, southerner because the Confederacy's cause was lost. Yeah, right. See you next time. We couldn't go home We were too young to pay the rent I was working on the mechanics Of the cross your heart bra LBJ was the president My pal Travis asked me the next day He said, was it hard to score? I lied to him and said it was a snap And we laughed as we walked out the door To his songs. Where do you go in the summer of your junior year to learn the difference between right and wrong? Me and the boys just wanted some girls, but we were scared to try little tenderness. So we souped up our cars, fought in the bars like that was gonna get us Hadn't died. Travis called me up the other day.